So, take your daughter, your only daughter Rachel, whom you love, and go to the world called Hyperion and offer her there as a burnt offering at one of the places of which I shall tell you. So, you must listen well. The future of humankind depends upon your obedience in this matter. Wheel of Genre. The book podcast for people who like their books. Like a game show? I don't know. Like a game like show, Like a medieval yeah. torture instrument? We're, yeah. <laughs> We're spinning the wheel, and this uh, sequence we have landed on Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Now, I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm John. What are we reading this time? We are on Scholar's, Scholar's Tale. Tale. Yeah. Yeah. Sol M. Weintraub. Sad. Very sad. Tug me heartstrings. I, you know, here's here's a point that I'd like to just launch right into this. For me, I felt like this this is a story. This is a book where every chapter we can very clearly point to the kind of genre conventions that Dan Simmons is playing with. So we start off with the priest tale, which we already identified as this cosmic horror element. Then we have the soldier's tale, which not only has the kind of war fiction, military fiction aspect going on to it, but it has a little bit of erotica. In it. Sex and death. Yep. Oh, yes. Then we read The Poet's Tale, which to me has this like coming of age of an artist tale vibe. Like think of like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce or, uh, you know, some, something along those lines. Or even maybe a picaresque type thing where you have him going from place to place. He's very much a victim of circumstance. Yeah. All this to say, I feel like The Scholar's Tale is a little bit hard to pin down in specific genre conventions. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I found it difficult to in it as well. I'm reading it thinking like, you know, I don't see any obvious genre here. Maybe just straight sci-fi with, the, with yeah. the basic premise being fundamentally, you know, a time travel tale. But I don't know if that qualifies as a genre. A little bit of Benjamin Button floating around in here. Yeah. I like how it turns into this. We've had three stories that are all knockouts, absolute incredible short stories. It's a crew of extremely powerful people. We've seen someone who has suffered more than anyone we've ever seen before with the priest's tale. They're the ultimate sufferer. Then we've seen the ultimate soldier, a super soldier, Kassad. Then we've seen the best poet of all time, even though he's kind of a hack. At the same time, he's he's the most pitiable poet and the most successful poet at the same time. And then we have these these ultimates all on an adventure together, almost like a D&D party. And now suddenly we have a simple family story that's a sweet tragedy. Yeah. And I really like how it's turned and into And it's that. introduced like, you know, the scholar sort of says, oh, my tale is very boring compared to you guys' story, mm. but I'll tell it if you insist. So I think so it does signpost itself as kind of less sensational than the other stories. Yes, and I'm saying that given the premise of being as sensational as it is. So, you know. Yet somehow it's more sensational. Like, this yeah. is the mm. only tale that has paparazzi, <laughs> you know, yeah. who are crowding them. It's uh, it's it's interesting how it's like, it's a humble tale. It's a very personal tale, yeah. but it's also the kind of thing that you would read about in the tabloids, like next to like woman dating Bigfoot. Man has daughter aging backwards, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, you know, that is the basic premise of the book. You know, Saul Weintraub, you know, is introduced to us on this pilgrimage as one of the pilgrims who has a, he's not, he's a relatively old man, I believe. I think he's in his 70s, thereabouts, you know, the beginning of the narrative. And you know, he's he got a little baby, you know, it was immediately a bit unusual. And then, you know, the story is that he has a daughter way back when he tells called, called Rachel. And she, you know, is interested in archaeology. She's very smart, very bright, wants to go there to the time tombs and essentially do research around the time tombs. And in the course of this 
research, she somehow ends up getting, I don't know, zapped by the anti-entropic field in some way, uh, which is more than just an anti-entropic field. In fact, time is moving backwards. And she begins to somehow age backwards. It's called like Merlin sickness. And nobody's quite sure like how it works exactly, but it seems as if she's in a little bubble of her own, separate from the rest of the world, in which every day when she goes to sleep, she is one day younger, essentially. And she's forgotten all of the memories that she had from later in life. So she's gradually forgetting her life in reverse order as she gets younger. So every day she wakes up fresh thinking she is just Rachel as she is, but the rest of the world has not moved along with her. So it's a very unusual conceit and a very poignant one, I think. Of, you know, mm. you, you think of many sad stories of like someone getting older, but you don't think how sad it would be for someone you love to get younger and younger. And, you know, then, you know, it doesn't take long for the reader to click, oh, right, that baby is obviously Rachel. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's a very interesting interesting twist there, which is, I think has been the case with every single story. But so far, it's been an interesting twist. has been a bombshell. I, I like how Dan Simmons waves away the kind of like first questions that would come to your mind. By stating clearly that, you know, she still eats and she still excretes. It's not like she's living backwards, you know, like yeah. like if, if there was like a strict moving backwards in time thing, you would imagine she'd be kind of fundamentally operating in reverse. He kind of just waves it all away and says, oh, no, when she sleeps at night, this yeah. is when it when the clock ticks backwards. So that way you don't have to deal with mm-hmm. any kind of like trickery. Yeah. And he has Saul Wine Traveler going around seeing all these different experts wow. who all basically say, Damn if I know. The, the, he evades explanation by just saying it's unexplained. Yeah. It's just inexplicable. All right, fair. Okay, let's move on to fiction. We don't care how much. I think the, the conceit, in addition to being a very interesting science fiction thing, does create a, like you said just now, John, a different kind of sadness or a different kind of drama where it's not someone getting older, it's someone getting younger. And I was thinking about that for the experience of these parents for Sol and Saray. It's interesting because it could be a happy thing because you're getting to relive your child's childhood. She gets to like 27 or 20, almost 30, I think, when she starts to start aging backwards. And it's almost like parents going back and looking at old baby photos and family photos and family videos. They're living that constantly because at one point when she's seven, they have to buy her the same bike that they bought her when she turned seven the first time. But then it's really sad because they say, okay, after we have her birthday, because she wakes up thinking, oh, it's my birthday. The next day, they have to destroy the bike because if she wakes up and says, you already bought the bike before my birthday, they'll have to deal with that every day. Oh, I loved how he would take her to the store to pick out like her favorite Mm. book, you know? And then at the end of the day, wrap it up and give that book that she chose to her for her birthday. Ultimate yeah. birthday hack. <laughs> yeah. Really enjoyed that one. There's advantages, I suppose, too. To move backwards in time, just 15 seconds, uh, I, I have a really good quote about that kind of like reliving the childhood and the comfort of that. Yeah. So here we go. Sarai had treasured every stage of Rachel's childhood, enjoying the day-to-day normalcy of things, a normalcy which she quietly accepted as the best of life. She had always felt that the essence of human experience lay not primarily in the peak experiences, the wedding days and triumphs which stood out in the memory like dates circled in red on old calendars, but rather in the unselfconscious flow of little things, the weekend afternoon with each member of the family engaged in his or her own pursuit, their crossings and connections casual, dialogues imminently forgettable, but the sum of such hours creating a synergy which was important and eternal. Yeah, it, it allows them to recreate their childhood and relive those like very mundane experiences which are every day but they're also like they're the foundation of a good life basically yeah there's a kind of a irony to it that you know i'm sure every parent almost wishes that their child could stay young forever 
Um, but you know, so very much a careful what you wish for situation for for Sarai and for for Sol Weintraub in this situation. Sure, they get her, their daughter to be younger, but it's younger every day. So the kind of sadness that we like, she has to keep throwing things out, and it's like you are losing someone in reverse. Like it especially draws connection to like someone being older, and you start to lose them because they forget things, and they, you know start to lose their faculties. But you know, you you'll see her one day be able to speak, and the next day not be able to speak. I think the saddest example of it is when you know. They have this thing where for her entire life, she would say, later, alligator, and they would respond like in a wild crocodile. And then we, we see the moment when she actually forgets that that thing, which I think she was like four years old. And I think that's, for me, that was the saddest moment. I think I nearly teared up. And he explains to her, wild crocodile and alligator is, and she's like, in yeah. a wild crocodile. Yeah. Zach, you just said the good life. I mentioned in my notes why this is not the good life. I was thinking about the same thing. Why is it so sad? Why does it hurt so much? It doesn't really make sense. Well, I think she's such like her. Rachel is such a go-getter and she's very smart, very bright. She's capable. She's going to achieve all these things. And because of this, she's with her aging backwards. She's not able to flourish and develop in the way she should. So I think there's just that real, that deep sadness there to it. And I think it's just a horrifying idea that someone with so much potential is going to never be able to fulfill it. And it's in slow motion too. Right. It's a law. It's a, yeah, it's a non-fatal accident in slow motion that's progressive and it's uh yeah i like what she says about it herself too because there's the suffering of the parents and there's the because she's not really aware of her suffering when she gets little when she's older she is because she's given herself all these tapes to remind her okay you are going back in time this is your situation these are all the things that you've learned from your future that you know she's already experienced and so she has to relearn that but eventually she tells her dad don't tell me anymore yeah. and she explains it just hurts because she didn't live those times then she says quote, the Rachel who went to another planet and fell in love and got hurt, that was a different Rachel. So she says she shouldn't have to suffer this pain. I thought that was interesting that she takes it on herself. She says, I can't learn about my future anymore because it's never going to happen. I mean, how does this fit in with like the sort of Hyperion narrative? Like the idea is that every single story is contributing something to this larger whole that we're gradually building up. What, what is it that's unique in this story? But what's the sort of new information we've got here about Hyperion. Sounds like the Shrike is playing God and talking to him and Saul is experiencing these interventions. Is it explicit that the Shrike? Shrikes. I know that no. um, I know that his wife, Sarai, mm. sees the Shrike without realizing it in her dream. Seeing it as a golem. And maybe we could talk about that dream yeah. a little bit because it seems like very important to the to the story and a lot of lot of the more theological aspects of it as well. Yes, yeah, so the Shrike seems to be involved there. But... Two primary pieces of evidence. One is both of them in their dreams see glowing, two glowing red orbs, which are kind of like the signpost of the Shrike without actually, you know, being this Shrike. And then the other one is the wife sees it, but she calls it the golem, which I thought was a really, you know, that could be, that could mean that that could or could not mean the Shrike. But I I mean, that's specifically like Jewish, not mythology, but legend legend Legend, yeah so like the golem being an artificial man a you know you could even say like a proto robot which i believe the shrike has been described previously as yeah fundamentally constructed but it's unclear how why or well in the poet's tale it's compared to frankenstein's monster yeah Yeah. because they think it's constructed i think they said that it's only a suspicion we should read more golem tales yeah just throwing that out there. Throwing that yeah. out there. You know, I think I think that something that happened that really struck me, but no one seemed to comment on in the, in the story itself, was that when the time tide shifted, the first thing that happened before that was a space opened up in the time tombs. So basically, she's in there. 
she's doing these kind of like sonar mapping of the time tunes. And basically a chamber appears out of nowhere. It's almost as if the tunes are shifting. So, so we know they're coming backwards. And how do you change something that is essentially headed backwards? That that's unclear to me. The only way in my kind of head canon I could make this work is if somehow fundamentally the future changed, which meant that what was being sent backwards changed. But I don't have, you know, it's it's only commented on that the structure of the time tombs changes. It doesn't say anything more than that. So we're kind of left wondering, what does this mean? Yeah, there is some notion, though, that we're starting to get here, and I do think it gets fleshed out in the, the following story as well, is this idea that somehow the time tombs are moving in the opposite direction time-wise than the rest of the universe, the web or whatever. Certainly the rest of Hyperion as well, I believe. So this is like the first clue that we have that the time tombs might be moving in, in a different direction somehow, that the you know, force field around it is not just there to protect the time tombs, but somehow has a animating sort of quality to it, like it's sending it in the the opposite direction or it's cocooning it from the rest of the world or the rest of the universe sorry so he's moving in the opposite direction we had that before in Kassad's tale as well where he said that he his lover in the story was from his future and that he was from her past somehow and they were meeting an intersection <laughs> uh, so the time tombs you know as the name suggests like you know clearly the time is the key aspect here where the time tombs are empty now and you know but there's this idea that they're moving backwards and then the question is oh, who sent them backwards you know and that that is the sort of one big question marks there's still yet to be filled in yet to be answered so i guess it, that adds it adds that to the quality to this sort of story as well of the overall hyperion myth so i guess that's maybe the main contribution that we get here to the sort of answering these big questions like why, why they've been why they're going to go to hyperion and what what hyperion's all about it also gives us a different aspect of the shrike so just to do a quick review priest tale we see the shrike as a kind of like cultish figure you have these kind of sexless deathless people the three score and the three score and ten and you know they worship at an altar and the shrike appears as this kind of like specter in their kind of like cultish vaguely christian worships in the in the soldier's tale we get the shrike as a kind of walking death machine in the poet's tale, we get the Shrike as a blessing muse. Yeah, muse. Yeah, and like Jack the Ripper. Yeah, so we get Shrike as slasher, like like the kind of slasher villain, as well as creative muse. This one is totally different. We get Shrike as a kind of like Abrahamic god, and I think that it's an important detail, or maybe just like a wink at the reader, that Salt Weintraub is a Kierkegaard scholar. Kierkegaard's book. Fear and Trembling is all about the anxiety that Abraham feels when God asks him to sacrifice his only son, his son which was promised by God, and now God wants to take away that that child. And Saul is getting these, I was gonna say like voice messages, but that's almost like a you know, like a text message type thing. He's getting these kind of like prophecies or like communications from God in dreams, telling him to, in very Abraham Old Testamenty terms, to sacrifice. Rachel, as a burnt offering. Yeah, I think he uses the exact language from the Bible, isn't it? Like, you will take your daughter mm-hmm. as a burnt um, offering. And burn her as a burnt offering. And when he offering. goes to visit. Offer as a burnt offering. Burnt offering. Bit. It bothered me that they used yeah. the same word twice in the sentence. That's how I knew it was from the Bible. Uh, just... The Shrike 
priests and the people in the Shrike Temple seem to know more than I expected they did, or at least they think they do. When Saul goes there to get answers and he keeps demanding answers and they say, would you like to join the the Church of the Shrike? If you join, maybe you'll learn something. He says, I might if it helps my daughter. When he finally says which time tomb she's related to, the Sphinx time tomb, they change. The priests there, they all stand up. The tone changes a lot because very dangerous. And then the main priest almost threatens him, yells at him, and they kick him out. And what he says is, your daughter has been chosen by the Avatar, what they call the Lord of Pain of the Shrike, to atone in a way which all sinners and non-believers must someday suffer, someday very soon. So they clearly have an idea that something about moving backwards in time will happen to more people. I don't know if they're correct. It just seems that they have an idea about what the end of the world will look like, and they're fairly certain about it. So I'm curious to see how Rachel's suffering relates to other people. We know that the Shrike impales people on this tree of thorns. So it raises the question of like, you know, what is the eventual fate of humanity? Is it to be impaled on this tree? What does the Shrike want with Rachel to impale her on the tree? Why go through the trouble of, why go through the whole thing of like making her age backwards? There's a lot of question marks here. And there's also question marks about who the Shrike cult is and what they want. To me, it's unclear about whether we, they don't seem like good guys. We could start with that. But are they raiders to humanity? Are they people who respect the Shrike, but are, you know, want in some way positive outcome for humanity? It's it's totally unclear. Well, they seem to have this notion. I don't know. That it's very unclear, that, like you said, Bob, like how much they actually do understand and how much they just sort of, they appear confident because they're so doctrinaire. Like they just seem to have this notion that if you suffer, it's because you deserved it and the Shrike is yeah. punishing you. So if you're suffering, how could you be innocent? It sort yeah. of warped Christianity in a way. So I think they seem to me, like, I just I just read that as being like, all right, he's gone to them and they see my daughter suffering and they're like, I guess, well, the Shrike will punish the wicked. And, you know, they, they just seem to have this notion that if you're suffering, you deserve it, that there's some kind of value in this fear and suffering. But something, there's certainly something specific about the time because when he first goes, they're very calm. They're like, oh yeah, okay, so your daughter's suffering. Yeah, maybe we can help. What, what's What's really going on? Maybe we can help. Then he says... When he mentions the Sphinx time tomb, that's when they freak out. And they say, oh, she's, we know who this is now. She's suffering for a very good reason. If it was regular suffering, I don't think they cared that much. There's something about time moving backwards and the eventual, like, reveal of what is inside the time tombs. I wonder if that will involve the suffering of humankind, too. Somehow when they arrive from the future into the past when they were full and that whatever is inside can be unleashed into the world, I wonder if that is similar or somehow related to Rachel's suffering. There just seems to be a lot about time. I also wonder how significant the Abrahamic task is, because Saul starts thinking about what if God had to sacrifice himself instead of his son, and what will happen if Saul goes to the Shrike and demands that, no, she will not be sacrificed, you will have to sacrifice yourself in order to save her. Not really not sure where that's going to go. But I'm wondering, why is Rachel so significant? Why is Saul chosen to go on this this pilgrimage? The other people seems more obvious. Saul, I don't know. Well, it's kind of a cosmic accident. Like it wasn't, it doesn't seem like she was selected. It seems like she was caught in the wave. Yes, but why this kind of suffering? Why did the Shrike give this kind of suffering? Why have the, why is the church interpreted interpreted it as very yeah. essential? It could be, I mean, Rachel has gone into the time teams researching them and there's Clearly, a lot of stuff going on with Hyperion, like that they, they they don't want. There are quite significant forces at play that want to keep Hyperion hidden away. Like it, it's been prevented continually from entering the web by, I believe, like 
Is it the Shrike Council who's doing that? The CEO of the All Thing. What, Mining Gladstone? Mining Gladstone. Yeah, well, it somehow did continually denied this status. And, you know, they, it says in this story that there's a curious lack of funding for research about the time tombs and Hyperion in general, considering how unusual some of the things we see in it. So I wonder if there's a kind of sense in which she's punished for getting too close or for, you know, inquiring too closely into the time tombs and you know maybe she's like a warning or something against doing so it gives me that same unsettled feeling that we talked about when we talked about the shrike like there's no it's very unclear why it's doing this these things these terrible things like when the shrike is killing everyone in keats people are just exploding and there's no explanation as to why they're murdered they're just suddenly murdered in gruesome ways and we can't pin down why so it's it's a, another weird thing why is rachel suffering yeah it seems like there's a lot of vested interest to keep hyperion a mystery and obviously mm-hmm. her scientific so not scientific but her research her archaeological research was obviously directly counter to that and maybe she deserves to be punished for her hubris in trying to understand hyperion offer Maybe she was on the the verge of something maybe too, she was on the verge a, a discovery of other people weren't capable of. And you know, if she shuts, if maybe she was actually in the process of making that discovery, because if she loses a day every time she goes to sleep, maybe she knew it. And then this is just weird speculation, but that could be that she is learning something, and now she gets every day cut off one by one, so she gets further and further away from that truth. Yeah, in charge of the mystery. So many mysteries. I feel like Dan Simmons, his style is to set up grand mysteries and then kind of leave them tantalizingly unanswered. This one is especially that way. I feel like we've gotten, this is, we've never gotten so close to the Shrike and the time tombs and the truth of it. We've never been given so much information, but yet this time I feel the, the furthest away from knowing. I thought I was getting closer and now I feel like it's all been snatched away and I have no idea. Yeah, we don't really get any answers, I don't think, to any of these big questions that get raised. So if, if we get lots of information, we get lots of tidbits in this one because we go into the Sphinx, we learn about how the time tombs work, we learn a little bit more about the Shrike, but it all that information seems to take us further away from the purpose. Well, and it's like we've already gotten all this other information and it's hard for us to fit in this new information and make it reconcile with the old information. It's like, it's like, you know, you go to like a fiction writing workshop and they're like, start with the end in mind. The detective novel author is going to feed you pieces of information until the reader has their, the whole story in their head fleshed out. And it seems like there's different stories each time. Each chapter has a different thing that he's feeding you. And if he wanted to, he could make each one of these a book. And have, you know, the Shrike with the, is it four score and 10, four score and 12? Three score, Three and, score 10. and 10. 17. Yeah. He could have, you know, I don't know what a score is, but. Well, 20. 20. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can, there's a sense in which he could have any one of these chapters be its own book. And he treats that kind of disclosure of information in that way. It's hard to put them together. I think Saul's a good character for this to happen to because. Partway through, Rachel asks him whether he believes in God, and he says he's waiting to believe in God. So you have a character who's fun, I don't want to say faithless, but I'll say open to the experience of belief, but not quite there. Unwilling, he's 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 fundamentally opposed to blind obedience, which is what he, you know, sees religion for the most part to be. You know, he himself is a scholar, you know, he thought about he writes about God, yes, but, you know, he seems to write about, you know, Kant as well and various other philosophers. So he's very much in that philosophical school. He doesn't believe anything until he's seen it with his own eyes and proved it with, you know, his own faculties of reason. And he's just not able to do that with with 
God. So, you know, I think as with most sort of sensible atheists, it accepts that sure God could exist, but, you know, until he's seen it with his own eyes and, uh, you know, understood it with his own facts, he's not going to believe in it. So in that sense, he's fundamentally an unbeliever, right? Because to be a believer is to be a blindly obedient, essentially. And that is sort of the crux of this of like, we've talked about it before, but when he goes into mentioning this story of Abraham offering his son whom he loves and offers him as a burnt offering or whatever, and he's willing to do that. And he says any religion that is going to be based on blind obedience and in which the sort of the fundamental story is a man who's willing to kill his own child just out of pure obedience is an evil religion. So I would say he's very much like not religious. You know, he's certainly open to the idea, but yeah, he, he seems fundamentally to be opposed to it more so than he is open to it, I would say. To pull on the Kierkegaard thread, Kierkegaard's thing in Fear and Trembling is that belief is actually an impossible thing. Like it's not, it's not like you can just say, oh, I'm a believer. There's, there's a certain kind of false consciousness with that of, yeah, if you, if like, basically he points to everyone in our world today who claims to be a believer and says, no, they're telling themselves a story. True belief is an anxiety written impossible task that forces you to confront an impossibility and to work your way around an impossibility. And I think that for Saul, I think that Dan Simmons is actually kind of dramatizing that anxiety of belief because ultimately he does come to a point, I don't want to say of belief, but of choosing to engage with it. You know what I mean? After after his wife dies, he says, okay, I'm going to go to Hyperion now, which to me yeah. is the the moment where he starts acting like a Kierkegaardian believer. He's going to do the impossible thing, not telling himself necessarily a story about how he's going to make it right. Uh, not, you know, he says, "No, I'm going to go there and I'm going to I'm going to see what happens." You know? Yeah, and I think Kierkegaard going would, to leap, leap. Uh, yeah, going to leap. I think Kierkegaard would probably like for the most part. I think saul weinstein is stuck in you know the, the ethical mode the ethical stage in this you know where he's talking about well it's not right you know it's wrong to kill an innocent child you know out of obedience um and the shrike does in a way the shrike seems to represent this sort of irrational belief because the shrike is a fundamentally irrational force that is it defies all rational like known laws of time and space and you know the universe and that that sort of the awe that that inspires seems to be the basis of this shrike cult, in a way, where they just worship the chaos in a sense, or they just worship that which is beyond their comprehension. I don't know. I, I, I don't ever get the sense though that Saul Weintraub is necessarily like buying into it so much as that you know what has he got left to do? Yeah, you know he's lost Sarai. His daughter is you know too young to even speak at this point. She's becoming a baby again. What happens when she? gets past you know the point where she was born does she just disappear so at that point he's, he's been to every single doctor in the world you know the world web he's been you know on every single tv show he's here except you know he's done everything possible with the exception of going to hyperion to so, so, you know so upset his daughter and it seems to me that i don't i don't see him leaving this ethical mode basically you know to some original religious state I, I see him staying in the ethical but like, well i've got nothing left to do except for go here if i want to save my daughter and she's all about that yeah he's also 
I want to read a quote in a second because I think he's not just accepting the leap of I'll maybe believe there's something happening, the, the, the Shrike has something in my interest or that whatever is calling me in Hyperion has something in my interest. He, like Kassad, I think, want to challenge their challenge. They're, they're going to challenge that challenge because Kassad, at the end of his story, he says, if he goes back, he's not going to have a conversation with Moneta or the Shrike, he's going to kill them both. But what they want him to do is come and have a conversation. He's going to kill them both. Then what Saul decides, once he gets to Hyperion, he says he's yelling at the god in his dream. He says, listen, there will be no more offerings, neither child nor parent. There will be no more sacrifices for anyone other than our fellow human. The time of obedience and atonement is past. And he says, that's all. Now either leave us alone or join us as a father rather than a receiver of sacrifices. You have the choice of Abraham. So he's going to demand that whatever is calling him do the same thing that it's asking him to do. Which leaves leaves open the possibility of goodness in the Shrike. So like when Abraham makes that leap of faith, he does so fundamentally believing that God is good, you know, despite everything, you know, there's the expectation of goodness to God. I think that no one expects the Shrike to be good. I think that when Saul gets these visions and, you know, as he learns, especially as he learns more about the Shrike, we as a reader and Saul presumably as a character has no expectation of this being anything other than a butchering. But how would you find any goodness in that? Like, why is he's he's either gone totally insane, believing that he could find goodness in the Shrike? Or I'm curious about if we think that the Shrike was some sort of creation of humanity, like a robot, that the intention behind creating it is good? That's not going to help his well, daughter. Good. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question of good always brings up the question of good for who? Yeah. Or, you know, good for what purpose? So it's potential, you know, they, had, they have talked about the Shrike potentially being sent by some race in the future as like a preemptive strike. It's got mentioned mm-hmm. uh, in an earlier story. I know it's going to become a you know, theme for the next story as well. So there seems to be some notion that the Shrike might have been created and it might have been created for a reason and might have been sent back in time as some kind of a preemptive strike. So good for something or good for someone, but it's still not clear like what function the Shrike is serving or, or whom the Shrike is serving. Like, is it sh- serving some future mankind for reasons that we can't yet comprehend? Or is it, you know, the AI sending it to destroy mankind? We don't really know what, what's going on at the moment. So it's still very mm. much up in the air. But yeah, hopefully future stories will give us a bit more clarity. Although I'm starting to give up hope of absolute transparency on these points. And you know what? I'm, I'm not sure I want to add, but I'm enjoying the mystery. I think that's a good style. I, I'll just lay that <laughs> card on the table. I think that's that's like a style. That's a that's an aesthetic choice. And I, I like it. Yeah, absolutely. it reminds me of like Lost. That's my favorite TV show of all time. Yeah, people said like it got worse after the you know the last few series aren't so good. Couldn't just doesn't couldn't disagree more. That show got better and better until it finished, as far as I'm concerned. I'll die on that hill. The mystery is what matters. I have always been a believer of this. We've had a conversation like, oh yes, sorry, we've we've talked about that idea when we've talked about Lovecraft, the never knowing, never seeing the monster in movies. If you see the monster too early, it ruins the mystery and the horror of the movie. Yeah. Well, it robs us we've of, of imagination, which you know is arguably the sort of the true function of, oh, not true function of, but necessarily. But I think like that's the value of a book over a movie, right? Yeah, the book is really just his words on a page, but that enables you the mental freedom to. Do you know what I mean conjure worlds, whereas you mm. know being constrained by a single set and a single you know interpretation mm-hmm. of events as you are in like a film or a TV show adaptation, you know is is it still satisfies that kind of 
human imagination a little bit. And I think it's the same thing with the strike remaining inexplicable. You know, we imagine the worst. And it becomes a much more personal experience, I think, when you don't have other people's interpretations superimposed onto your own. So I think, you know, that does seem to be logically like the nature of fiction to be to enable us this flights of imagination, especially like sci-fi. I'm curious about different expectations of different genres, though, since this has so many genres in it, and we're coming up to the next story is going to be mystery. I feel like often in literary fiction, where there's not any definite tropes or any definite expectations, you can get away with a lot of things not being wrapped up. But I feel like in certain genres, if you don't fulfill certain promises, you will lose your readers. And I'm wondering if that's going to happen here, yeah. or if the mystery is going to be so interesting that we're we're fine if it's not all revealed to us. Because if you if you don't reveal who the killer is at the end of a mystery, like a murder mystery, people are going to trash your book, no matter how well it's written. Yeah, and I think we do get a lot more answers in the next story than we get in this one, I would argue. Or at least a lot mm-hmm. more clarity on like, the sort of lay of the land when it when it comes to, you know, the hegemony and where Hyperion sits and the technical and all these other aspects of the story's world which have sort of been hinted at so far but haven't really been gone into much detail but i don't think we get clarity i think we get further aspects and further mysteries but not clarity yeah well maybe this is not there's only one section that's a mystery and maybe it's more of a science fiction in science fiction i don't think you really need to wrap anything up at the end so if it's not completely revealed to us i feel like i would not be as upset i feel like there's not that expectation of the genre it is too john john you said it earlier like one of the points of science fiction especially in the poet's tale is to telescope like our experience of life and say wow we're so small or so young and compared to the universe i wonder if ending a book in more mystery is what science fiction well, and i mean i think like the book's called hyperion you know and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's not it's no secret like it's mentioned quite explicitly throughout the book Though this is a, a reference to John Keats's poem, unfinished poem, Hyperion. And it's this unfinished poem that has exercised the imagination of readers since John Keats's untimely death at the age of, I think, 26. And, you know, it's part of the legend, part of what makes, you know, Keats the, the purest poet, as, as uh, Sag Keen Billy and Martin Salinas discussed in the previous story. It's a, an unfinished thing exercises our imagination far more than a completed thing. You know, a, a fragment hmm. contains so many possibilities, whereas a completed work closes hmm. off possibilities. So, I mean, the, for this name, this book is named after an incomplete poem. So, I, you know, I don't think we should be looking to a book named after an incomplete poem for all the answers, even though we might seek for this, just as Martin Salinas has seeked for essentially five hundred years to finish his Hyperion Canto. So, you know, he never really meets meets this point. And the moment he does, almost get there. Half the gas singed and burned to burnt up by the Shrike and destroyed. So there's a resistance to closure, closure, uh, finality in this in this book. And I think it's sort of very clear to us, you know, even from the title that this is going to be the case. He seems to be enjoy exploring this ambiguity and this mystery and the open open endedness. It's fundamentally to resist our attempts to close it off. Reminds me of the the idea of a fragment which opens more possibilities. Reminds me of when we read Edgar Allan Poe's story, his final story, The Lighthouse, which is only a paragraph or two paragraphs. And we found out it really does not get much done. However, it sparked so many adaptations and almost a whole tradition of people writing it and rewriting yeah. it and trying to finish it in their own way. It invited people to dip into the genre and take it into their own hand to start writing. So that is very interesting to think, okay, if it's if we're looking at a fragment as the 
model, it's kind of fun to create an yeah. air fragment. Well, Lighthouse also gives you a template, like a good joke template. An X, Y, hey. Z, walk into a bar. You know what I mean? And the Lighthouse is like, two men show up at a Lighthouse and one and and bad things start happening. You know, like it, it really, <laughs> yeah. it, it gives you a nice playground in which to stretch your imagination. You know, Canterbury Tales is unfinished too. I think there's supposed to be two more travelers on that pilgrimage who are supposed to speak and Chaucer apparently was planning to write them. I know that some of those tales are partially legends that already existed, but some of them he was trying to turn into his own yeah. writing and it just never I happened. have uh, Canterbury Tales very fresh on the brain and I can say that yeah. there's, I think there's at least five manuscripts all of which have no overlap in the stories within them. So like the the version we have today and like the Penguin edition is the editor is basically smashing together all of these different manuscript traditions together so that they all kind of play nice with each other, but also excising certain things. Like I noticed how in the Penguin edition, like one of Chaucer's contributions is actually like a philosophic discourse in there. The Penguin editors didn't deem it fit for the Canterbury Tales. You know what I mean? Like they they just kept in a lot of the stuff that's like retellings of old legends and et cetera, et cetera, like you said. But I do think it's interesting how in the Canterbury Tales you have the this play of genres, the philosophic discourse, the the kind of comedy, the tragedy, the Arthurian romance type thing, the body tale, yeah. The body tale. B A W D Y. And and here Dad Simmons is really kind of doing the same thing. He's He's mashing together all of these different types of stories, even, and you know, I don't want to say that the scholar's tale is the philosophic discourse, but we, we got a little bit of that going on here. We've got a dramatized wrestling with God in this tale. Not just soul crushing, but heartbreaking. More like soul crushing. Oh, I love oh. mercy. All right. Well, uh, we'll call that. We'll call that a day. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.